we thought we'd add on to our um, variety of High Republic content with a with an in-detailed review and discussion of the first volume of the High Republic comic series. The colour artists they've got on this, I think, have nailed the tone um, perfectly alongside, obviously, the, the actual art as well. I'd now have a signed copy by Kevin Scott. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. So, yeah, excited to dive into it in detail. Hello there, and welcome to episode 33 of Live from Vader's Castle. As always, you're joined by your two hosts, Dan McQuarrie and John Lee. How are you doing, John? Yeah, not doing too bad, not doing too bad. How are you doing, mate? Oh, fine, fine. It's been a busy week. Um, recording this on Sunday, which is usually a bit later than we record, but it's just been a bit of a hectic week. I haven't even had a day to breathe. I think you've been the same. Yeah, pretty much. It's been, I've been, the struggle of the week has been trying to find time to play some new Pokemon. And that has been, that's been painfully not as much as I'd love to be playing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've, uh, I've been trying to find my time to play Pokemon as well, um, which often is like post midnight is the time that I've been finding to, to play it at the moment. And Battlefield. I've been trying to find time to play Battlefield, the new Battlefield game as well. And I'm struggling to find time to play that. So. The stresses of not being able to be back in lockdown when we could game twenty four seven. Yeah, I was just thinking now. Let's go back to lockdown where I wake <laughs> up at ten, game till about one in the morning, and then repeat it all the next day. That what time to be alive? Yeah, those those were the good days. You know, obviously with the exception of you know people dying, which was really sad. But the lockdown was nice for catching up with the gaming. Yeah, it was it was nice. I think that was the time I spent binge watching. Clone Wars, Rebels, mm-hmm. yeah, and probably something else uh, in that time as well. So it was a it had its ups and downs. I, I like to I like to think that this podcast would have never happened had it not been for lockdown, because I don't think the two of us would have rekindled our love affair with Star Wars to the extent that we have were it not for lockdown. Yeah, definitely true. I think that <clears throat> that time. I know I spent personally like watching Clone Wars and Rebels and stuff. Definitely rekindled that flame. So without having all that free time, oh, I wouldn't be sitting here today recording this, that's for sure. Exactly. Um, and then just, well, it just came to my head whilst I, when I mentioned Battlefield um, along the, the Star Wars lines, uh, because obviously Battlefield is made by DICE and EA. There was a, <laughs> there was a little bit of bad news for Battlefront players uh, on Twitter the other day, did you see it? I did. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just sad, isn't it? It's disappointing to to yeah. think that a company like EA really just doesn't really care about their Star Wars fans, which is disappointing. No. no, so if anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, it's just a wee tangent before we get into what we're supposed to be talking about this episode. But it came into my head, so we'll talk about it. Um, some industry insider slash journalist came out of a sort of a thread of tweets basically saying that DICE had pitched Battlefront 3 to EA as their next big game after Battlefield which has just come out and EA basically turned around and said no because we need to give 20% of like the profits back to Disney we don't want to do it because we need to earn more money like more sales so we're just going to make another Battlefield game Um, and yeah, I mean, so basically, Battlefront 3 is dead in the water. 
DICE are just going to go and make another Battlefield game, which is ridiculous because they've just released one and it's pretty massive. So why do they need to start making another one? They could literally just bang out Battlefield, Battlefront 3 in the next couple of years. You know, they're saying that they need to earn, you know, they need to sell 20% more units of the game to make the same profit. They would sell more. Like, I'm sorry, Star Wars is bigger than Battlefield. And particularly with how massive Star Wars is, is at the moment and the way they could monetize the game with battle passes and cosmetics and skins and stuff. <clears throat> They're really just throwing money in the bin at this point. So um, my official position is screw EA. I don't like the company anymore. I've bought Battlefield, but I'll never buy another EA game again. I hate them. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, it just seems like baffling obviously game sales and all that you know i have absolutely nothing no um <clears throat> background on that whatsoever you know no expertise but it, just in this day and age you think yeah okay they might not they might have to sell 20 percent more battlefit battlefront 3 um games to make the same profit which okay that math makes sense to me um one i think they would definitely sell them anyway which is because it's star wars and two is as you just said like monetize it like Make a base game like Battlefront 2, obviously without all the fucking stupid martial transactions, and then just add in the way they have battle passes and stuff like they have done. Like, literally, every new game that seems to come out these days, a multiplayer game has a battle pass. Chuck that in there, and that 20%, you'll recoup over the next like year, two years, just like with extra DLCs and bit and pieces like that. I mean, it's, it's Star Wars, there's always new things to add to it. You know, over the last like what two years, two, three years, they've had. Uh, like Clone Wars Season 7, that could be new content. Mando, that's new content. High Republic, that's new content. Like, it just sounds like they're still thinking the same way. It's like, okay, we've made the game, now we have to sell it, and that's like the end of our money for it. It's like, well, obviously it's not, because DLCs, you know, Battle Passes, make you, make you money over like another like five years after the game releases. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, Lucasfilm is literally giving them free content like to um adapt like literally every couple months next year i mean like there's boba, boba fett obi-wan kenobi bad batch and or mandalorian there's the high republic there's so much stuff that lucasfilm are making and they can just really do a content drop for every single one of them and they'd earn so much money so it's just oh, it's daft yeah it's just stupid i just don't think they care about star wars anymore i think that they for some reason think that their other franchises are more marketable and you know maybe they are I don't know what their statistics and their sales are but if you speak to any Star Wars fan and there's a lot of them in the world they all want Battlefront 3 so you know we don't need to talk about this for much more apart from the fact that it's a stupid idea and I hope some other game development company gets the license to make Battlefront 3 because EA certainly shouldn't have it because they don't know what to do with it yeah, it's just a shame that Dice have to like answer to EA for it as well because it seems like Dice are up for it, and you know I'm sure like people who spent years working on Battlefront like one and two at Dice would love to make a Battlefield three. Uh, so it's just a shame that they've they've been cut off at the knees by mm. by EA. Well, a lot of them left, like a lot of the major game devs left, and I think what people are realizing now is I think the reason that they left is because they pitched Battlefront 3 and EA said no I think that's why a lot of the big game devs from DICE ended up leaving the company so I guess it all sort of makes sense now because 
yeah, if you're like a diehard Star Wars fan who's finally got the chance to make Star Wars games and this big company turns around and says, actually, no, we're not going to let you make any more, you're going to be pretty pissed, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. I mean, just even from watching like the uh, like gallery episodes for like Mandalorian, you can just see how people go into these jobs like for Star Wars or like they, they go in and like work on a Star Wars project like a dream of theirs. I know that's like for film and TV, but I'm sure it's exactly the same for like people going into the games um, industry. So I can imagine, yeah, like having that dream ripped away, ripped away from you would be a definite motivation to go find a different job. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so that was just a quick little tangent because I saw it and we've had an episode of the podcast in the past where we ranted about EA being useless with a Star Wars license. We may as well bookend that <laughs> with Battlefront 3 not happening. Um, but yeah, should we uh, should we get on to our main topic of discussion for today? Yes, yeah, a very exciting topic as well. So what we thought we'd do, because people seem to enjoy our... Um, Darth Vader comic discussions is that we take some of that into the High Republic so um, as listeners of the show might know me and John have been keeping up to date with the High Republic um, since it started in January we've done book reviews for Light of the Jedi Into the Dark and The Rising Storm which if you haven't listened to them go listen to them great episodes We'll obviously have one ready when Claudia Gray's The Fallen Star comes out in January as well. But we thought we'd we'd add on to our um our variety of High Republic content with a with a in detailed review and discussion of the first volume of the High Republic comic series. Um this is the Marvel High Republic comic series, just titled The High Republic. Um the first volume, I think it probably wrapped up in around about May, and then the trade paperback came out in about August. So it's not completely new, but I imagine there will be people out there listening right now who haven't dived into the High Republic yet or might have dived into the books, but they don't have time to read the comics. So we thought we'd sort of go through the five, first five issues, this first volume, discuss what's going on, um, give our thoughts on it, and hopefully it will be a, a fun and entertaining discussion for you. Yeah, I must say, Josh, I really did enjoy reading it on the, um, <clears throat> on the reread. I haven't read it in a while. Uh, although when I opened up to reread it this morning, I did also completely forget that I'd now have a signed copy by Kevin Scott. That was a nice little surprise to myself. Even though I literally got a signed probably about a month ago, I completely, I completely forgot until I opened up again. Yeah, exactly. That nice signed edition from the uh, the writer Kevin Scott himself. Yeah, nice. Adds a nice personal touch when I'm reading it. I feel like uh, I'm sitting there with him. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, as John said, obviously this is. Um, these issues were written by Kevin Scott, one of the High Republic writers who also wrote The Rising Storm. Um, and then the art, all five of these issues, the art was done by artist Ario Anandito. Um, I mean, we'll get into the art in more detail as we discuss it, but just broad strokes. I think we can both agree that the art in these first five issues are pretty phenomenal. I think this is some of the best art that I've seen in Star Wars comics, period, with maybe... I you know I'd I'd almost compare the artwork in this sort of close to Giuseppe Camancholi's art on the Darth Vader comic that we were talking about. Really powerful artwork, some great representations of the Force through the art, and then just bright colours. Feels very Star Wars, but very different because of you know the High Republic's nature. So I mean, do you agree, John? Do you are you a fan of the artwork in this series? Yeah, I'm a fan of the artwork. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned the colours because. Um, 
Yeah, I think the uh, the colour artists they've got on this, I think, have nailed the tone um, perfectly alongside, obviously, the, the actual art as well. Um, yeah, because High Republic, as we've discussed on previous podcasts, being like a the, obviously, high times of the Jedi. So, obviously, lots of use of bright colours and keeping things colourful. And I like, I especially like the panels where there's, like, lots of lightsabers in one panel. Uh, I like how they've just... I don't know if um, some of the background characters, but I love how they've just got loads of different mixtures of um, of lightsabers on the panels, and yeah, I think the art the artwork really helps to bring the story to life as as it did on the on the Vader series. So yeah, full credit to the artist. Yeah, yeah, and the the as as you pointed out, the color artists are obviously different people. The names I can see here are Mark Morales, Annalisa Leone. Um, as inkers and colour artists. So they are also to thank for the great artwork in this book. Um, but I have noticed, because on this High Republic series, there's some issues in the series where Ario Anandito like, sits out and they have another artist called George uh, Jantry who sits in. And I don't, I don't have a problem with his artwork. Like he's a talented artist. It just, when I compare it to... Anandito's stuff it just doesn't land the same for me I just don't think it's as good like stylistically for the series so I definitely do take my hat off massively to Anandito as an artist because I think he absolutely nails it and it, it, it you feel it when he's not doing the artwork on it in the sort of the few issues when he's not there so um obviously we give a lot of big shout outs to Kevin Scott because he's great and we've met him so he's our boy now but uh, Anandito deserves a shower as well. He's a great artist. Yeah, I mean, I'm <clears throat> probably just echoing what I said on uh, the Vader comics we're talking about. But you know, when it when you get an artist that works really well with their um, uh, writer, it really does you know make the story ten times better. Um, you know, you can have the best story in the world written by Kevin Scott, but if your artist isn't up to scratch and doesn't quite have the same vision it just doesn't come across well so again i think this is a fantastic combination of the two of them uh really using their particular skills combined to bring the story to life yeah and i do think this first volume of this story is probably one of the most sort of surprising and good um comic volumes that Marvel comics have released since they've had the Star Wars license since 2015. I do think it's one of the strongest um, ongoing series, but I do think this, this first volume in particular, which is called There Is No Fear, by the way, that's the title of the volume, um, is really, really good. And I, I mean, I've, I've reread it now maybe four or five times and every single time I just like get sucked into the story and the artwork and, you know, it's, it feels like seconds have gone by from when I start to when I finish. And I look at the time and I said, Oh, I've actually been had my head stuck in that for 30 minutes. I haven't even realized just because the, the story flies by and it's brilliant, brilliant stuff. So yeah, excited to dive into it in detail. Yeah, me too. I completely agree. And I was rereading it this morning, like by the time I finished it, the time had flown by and I was like, Oh, oh Jesus, I hadn't even realized I've been sitting here for yeah, like half an hour reading this. So yeah, excited to dive in and see what so, um, <clears throat> comparisons and uh, stuff we can discuss. Yeah, so for a bit of context for people who aren't up to date with the High Republic, this comic series, the first issue takes place sort of concurrently with Light of the Jedi and the end of the first comic is the end of the Light of the Jedi, like Light of the Jedi's final chapter, like the two of them line up in sync and then 
from that point onwards, the comic takes place after Light of the Jedi, but before, after Light of the Jedi and Into the Dark, but before The Rising Storm. So timeline-wise, that's where it fits. If people know Light of the Jedi, they've read it. It takes place after the Battle of Kerr, where, spoiler alert, Skier loses his arm, and and then that first issue finishes as the they open Starlight Beacon and then continues on from there. So that's your timeline context for people who may or may not know the High Republic. Um, but this five-issue series deals with um, the new villains that were introduced in Into the Dark, which are the Drengir, the um, ravenous dark side plants that Claudia Gray first introduced, but have found out in subsequent interviews that it is, even though Claudia Gray was the one to introduce them in Into the Dark, it is very much a Cavan Scott um, idea, the Drengir, which makes sense because he's a big horror fan and just hearing him speak, you can tell that he's the sort of guy who'd come up with ravenous <laughs> plants. <laughs> so um, they're, they're definitely a different type of villain for Star Wars. But I, I think just the way that the comic is drawn and the story's told, I think they're a very effective villain um, for this story. And I was definitely sold on them after Into the Dark. But I think this comic book like really, really nails down that they are actually quite terrifying and effective villains. Um, so we'll definitely dive into the Drengir quite a bit here. Yeah, I was, I was um, so, so I think when I first read it, I was surprised to see the Drengir that come back <clears throat> in this after because obviously they they were in the the Claudia, Claudia Gray book, and I, I thought maybe they'd um, they'd move on to something else for this comic. But I think it was a, it was a pleasure seeing them again. I think it just goes more leans more into the strength of the High Republic. Um, with the fact that all the stories are so intertwining. Um, and I think it, it paid off really well in this comic to have a returning villain like that, and, but flesh them out a bit more in the comic as, as, uh, as alongside the stuff we got in the books, I think it was, it was nice and so nice to see them on the page. Like I had an image in my head of what they look like, but it was nice to see exactly what the, uh, the writers and artists had them obviously on the storyboards for. Uh, so that was that was fun, and they do come across a lot more intimidating um, now. I've seen them on the page, so I think whenever I do get around to rereading um, Into the Dark, then uh, I'm sure they're the pages and chapters therein will be a lot more intimidating now. I've got an image in my head. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So should we should we sort of dive in, sort of issue by issue, and just sort of chat briefly about what happens in the issue, give our thoughts on each issue, and then we'll come back again at the end to sort of give our final viewpoint on the whole um, trade paperback. Yeah, well, it was me. It's a good idea. So the first issue, um, this is the one that's sort of taking place within The Light of the Jedi. Um, we're introduced to the, I guess, the, the main protagonist of this series, Keith Trennis, who is, at the start of this book, is the Padawan of uh, Master Skier, who is the Trandoshan Jedi, who we first met in Light of the Jedi. Um, and she's basically taken to a planet to do some training with him for her Jedi trials and then is told, I was surprised you're actually doing your Jedi trials right now. You've got to climb up these sort of like stone needles to retrieve a pendant. Um, but as the Force wills, something else happens. This big um, swarm of um, insects 
attack this village. Um, and the village is home to these sort of like little fairy looking creatures, one of which has been talking to Keith the whole time. Um, so she ditches her trial and goes to save them. <clears throat> and in doing so, finds out that Starlight Beacon and like the frequencies that it's emitting have been sort of like interfering with these insects, um, like traveling the way that they travel between planets that are like interplanetary creatures. Um, so they shouldn't normally attack a village, but they are because of Starlight Beacon. So she gets to the bottom of it through the force and ends up saving the village by getting Starlight Beacon to change their frequency. And in doing so, thinks that she's got herself in a load of trouble for not completing her trial. But actually, you know, because it's as the force wills, doing that and saving that village ended up being her trial. So at the, at the end of the issue shows her... Um, meeting Avar Chris, <clears throat> Avar Chris cutting off her Padawan braid and knighting her as a Jedi Knight. So it's a nice little introduction to her character, a little reminder of how the sort of like Jedi Knight trials process goes. And um, the comic sort of ends on the Starlight Beacon opening ceremony with all the Jedi holding their lightsabers up in the air, saying for light and life. So that's a bit of a an overview of what happens in this first issue. Um, is there anything that you particularly want to chat, uh, chat about in that first issue, John? Any any of your thoughts? Uh, no, I think you've nailed it there. But <clears throat> I will say, I think it was just a nice introduction for this new character. Um, I think it was nice to see her in this first issue, her um, stepping up for these trials. And, you know, just even though she thought she'd failed her trials, she, you know, did the right thing in the end, which is obviously the classic... Um, you know, moral compass of the, of the Jedi. So it's, it's nice to see that we've we've met a Padawan who already has that instilled in them. Um, it was nice to see her, like how her and Skier kind of get on. Um, he seems to be a bit uh, like a, I don't know, like a, a caring master, but one that's, you know, not maybe as forgiving or like as transparent to his motives as I think sometimes... Uh, a Padawan would like. He seems very like, oh no, we're doing it like this. Or, you know, this is the way that I'm going to teach you and you will eventually learn. Which I think is very probably very similar to how um uh like Loden was uh, was teaching um in the first book, Light of the Jedi. Um so it just reminded me of that a little bit. I liked the um the panel she had with the force when she's like looking through the force with these creatures. I thought that was that was very pretty. With like her, like almost like standing in space while like listening to what these creatures were doing. I thought that was cool. Uh, and yeah, and then obviously the the panel at the end, or near towards the end with the whole for light and life thing. I thought that was a really captivating panel on the on the page on that because I think that's how one of the books ends, isn't it? Really like that that how that intertwines with the books is yeah. That's the last chapter on, of like the Jedi. Yeah, yeah. They kind of finish on that light and life thing. So. It's just it's it's nice to see that on the page, and I think it it adds so much emotional weight to the to the writing um, in that book. Just to see it there with all the Jedi there, and especially through the eyes of this new Padawan who's just just become a Jedi Knight. I think that that adds so much uh, that emotional weight and value to this to that scene in the book and in the comic. Um, so yeah, yeah, I thought it was very very captivating first issue. 
because there's that nice little panel sort of when you see the whole for light and life thing you can just see like Keith with like a tear sort of streaming down her face sort of showing that like the emotional connection she has to all the Jedi in this sort of really significant moment when the Jedi are turning around to the whole galaxy and saying like we're there to protect you all basically yeah and it was nice to see some of the fan favorite Jedis in this shot as well so you obviously had like Avar Chris Yoda's there um Skiers there Trying to think, it's probably a few more I'm, I'm missing. I think Elzar's there, isn't he? I think. Yeah. I'll just Elzar's get there. the page up in front of me so I can see if he's there. I, th- I think he's standing behind Yoda. I've just got it in front of me. I think that's him. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it's nice. Stellan, Stellan's there as well. I think that's yeah, Stellan next day, Vi. Yeah. Yeah. So it's nice to see some fan favorites return in for this. Yeah. Um, I'm, sh- I'm sure they're pretty much like where they were described in the book, uh, which is which is not good to see. Yeah, it's nice to see a little Yoda appearance in this in this issue as well. He's he's only there briefly, but he just sort of wanders in and um, gives Avar Chris the position as Marshal of Starlight Beacon, which I thought was a nice little cameo from Yoda. Yeah, I mean, for a character, I suppose Yoda that was like teased with being like so old and stuff. He was like part of this this uh, era of Star Wars. So, like, we haven't seen much of him yet, and it has literally been like brief cameos here and there. Um, Maybe some conversations with the council he'll be on. So I'm, um, I'm excited to see. It's nice that we get keep getting these cameos. I'm assuming that as it goes further down the timeline, maybe we'll get a bit more Yoda. Yeah, Yoda definitely has a place in the story. I think they're just sort of saving him. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the first volume of the High Republic Adventures comic is like out in the UK now, so it might might be worth you getting that, John, because he does play. A somewhat smaller role but he does play a role in that comic um so it might be worth picking that up and catching up with that one yeah i will do you know i say a bit more a bit more yoda in his yeah. younger days in his, in his in prime his, in his prime days yeah exactly um but they're definitely doing some stuff for yoda so i'm going to be interested to see where they go with it further down the line um i guess one of the things that you mentioned i think is probably worth talking about in this first issue is skier um, as you said, he's got an interesting relationship where they clearly do have a very caring master and apprentice relationship. He's, you know, as you were saying, he's quite um, sort of like stern in his ways at times. Um, but when we meet Skir here, he's missing an arm, um, which happened in Light of the Jedi, as we said earlier. Um, but we sort of learn in this issue, right at the end, I think it is the final page, just after the for light and life thing, sort of like the epilogue of the issue that skier is going through some shit at the moment. We don't really know what it is after this first issue, but he's certainly going through something. Um, I think like the, the final sort of panel is him sort of like screaming in the air, just like, no. Um, so that sort of sets us up with where the story goes, that something is off with skier since he lost his arm at the battle of Kerr. So he, Whilst Keeve is your protagonist, I think Skier plays a really interesting role and he is quite central to the storyline as well. And I think this issue certainly introduces us to um, the new version of Skier that we didn't have in Light of the Jedi. Because him in Light of the Jedi was just, you know, your classic Jedi doing a good job, whereas we know here that something else is up and, you know, there's something playing at his mind. So it's, it's nice to have that complex Jedi character within the story as well or like not not complex because they're all complex but like struggling i guess is the, the word i was meant to use yeah it's like a struggling jedi character yeah i mean it's definitely obviously we find out more as the, 
as the volume unfolds. But yeah, it's definitely interesting in that first issue to give us that little, literally like last page um, tease as to something that was going wrong with him or cliffhanger, I suppose. Um, yeah, just because uh, one of the highlights we've talked about for like numerous parts of the Pirate Public stuff, I suppose, is, is just the depth and like the characters of the Jedi. Like they're not just like face value Jedi. Like we tend to see like in the more traditional Star Wars stories that we've had. So it's nice to see that they've at the end of this issue uh, like have a theme of that's going to continue um, in the character that we saw a little bit of in the um, in the three previous books. So it was nice that they then decided to explore more in this volume four of Skier. He's, he's an interesting character. The Trand Ocean Jedi is not not something you see every day. Yeah, exactly. And I think Keeve also has got it. He's quite an interesting character because she's qu- clearly like a very talented young Jedi, but very like self-doubting. Um, and we also have this sort of fun thing in this issue where like she swears a lot. And I think, I guess it's sort of the insinuation that she's a little bit sort of like working class or untraditional. And then she's surrounded by all these sort of like, you know, more sort of like, I guess the real world comparison is more upper class traditional people in the Jedi. And, you know, when she's talking to Avar Chris, she keeps on swearing and then apologizing for swearing and swearing again. And I just thought it's a funny aspect to Keeve in this sense that she's like, you know, she's sort of a bit of an unlikely hero in that sense, even though she's a super talented Jedi. Cavan Scott sort of presents her as a bit of like an unlikely hero in a sense. And I think it, it works really well for her character and gives her a little bit of sort of depth that I think um, really improves her character and her sort of relationship to the story. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's nice to see that they keep, they are keeping that theme of like High Republic Jedi. I don't think there's many, there's really many who've been introduced to that haven't had um, something unique about them. So it's nice to say if they've uh, continued this with Keeve and, um, and yeah, it was just, <clears throat> it's a nice introduction for her. I think the issue, to be fair, kind of just summed up her character uh, really well, just like what we were going to expect going forward in the next like, uh, four four issues. So I think, yeah, it's done a really good yeah. job this first first issue. And I mean, Kevin Scott has already come out and said that um, like his entire run on the High Republic comic is like Keeve is his main character. He's already written the end of her story. Um and like he might change it, but he's he's written the end and like put it away in a drawer. I think is what what he said. So the whole story is going to be really about Keeve. And then he's also said another interesting thing is that in Dooku Jedi Lost, which he read as a bit where they talk about the Lost Twenty, which are like Jedi who like left the Order in the past. <clears throat> and one of them is a Master Trennis, and he has said that that Master Trennis is Keeve. So we know one day whether it's, you know, 50 years down the line, 10 years down the line, <clears throat> that she is going to become one of the Lost 20. So how that story goes and how it unfolds, I think is like really, really interesting that we we sort of have this little idea. He's teased where the character might go, but how they get there and what the story along the way is, we have no idea. So I do think that's a really interesting aspect and I'm really excited to see how that story unfolds. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that, I didn't know that actually. That is actually uh, quite an interesting quite an interesting bit tidbit there uh I'm, I'm very interested to see where that goes to be honest he um because he wrote dooku jedi lost like before the high republic started but he was already working on the high republic he just sprinkled loads of easter eggs in it just to tease people because they wouldn't know the easter eggs until after they'd read the high republic so now people are starting to go back and being like wait a minute was 
Master Trennis is that Keeve and you know all those connections are starting to tie up now so it's he's he's a crafty man he's a crafty man that is that is a very crafty way of <laughs> of learning some easter eggs I, I respect that that's, that's that's clever from Gavin Scott so should we uh, we'll jump into issue two so issue two chrono- chronologically is now taking place after Into the Dark so like Into the Dark and Light of the Jedi sort of happen concurrently, but Light of the Dark sort of Light of the Dark Into the Dark sort of continues a little on after Light of the Jedi. So we're now sort of firmly after those three books in this second issue, and it sort of starts off with Keeve, Skier, and then two new Jedi who were introduced to Serik and Terret, who are these really interesting like. Um, they're like an alien species where they're they're twins, but they're like bonded. Um, what was the word I'm looking for? Like telepathically, is that is that the word I'm looking for? Uh, yeah, that's what I'd use. Yeah, they're like telepathically bonded. So, like when one of them feels pain, the other one of them feels pain, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, they're two new Jedi characters who are introduced, um, and they are essentially like two that are one, basically, but not a dyad. It's it's literally like they're just genetically the same thing, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but that they become very interesting throughout the story. So the four of them are off on a on a quick mission to this is it a hut ship which has been attacked by the Nile. Um yeah. and, and aboard the ship they find a dead hut, um, which is a another beautiful panel. I think it was like a double page spread in the in the comic, I think. Yeah, um, which is really cool. And along the way, they get attacked by sort of one lone Nile warrior who's sort of been left behind on the ship. Um, to which Skier just brutally murders it, m- murders the Nile, um, which is pretty horrific. And again, teases that there's something going on with Skier. Um, and then they basically they find some grain, which leads them to another planet. Um, where the grain had come from, Cedri Minor. And when they get to, when Skier and I think it's Serret get to Cedri Minor, um, Serret goes missing in these, what, what basically look like cornfields. Um, and we see like a little, like, thing of plant um, behind Serret before Serret goes missing. And that's sort of how that issue ends with um, Skier sort of chasing through the um the fields like trying to figure out where Sarah's gone and um they have gone missing. So I think there's a there's a lot more detail to that issue than that very brief overview. But um we'll give the overview and then we'll jump into talking about it. Um what did you think of this one, John? Uh yeah, I mean another another great issue that I think added some interesting plot points for for skier. I mean as you say they're like um, once they're aboard the ship, they get ambushed by that Nile, <clears throat> I don't know, like warrior or whatever. And yeah, Skier just goes to town on him. Um, you know, uh, I think he cuts him in half um, as he like ambushes Skier. And then Skier just seems to take it just uh, one step further and just like seems to just wailing on him uh, while he's just a, I don't know, lifeless, cut in half corpse. And it's, it's not really until um, Keeve comes along and is like, what are you doing? <laughs> Is that he um, is like comes back to his senses, but yeah, it's definitely. And there's a couple panels where it's like I don't know, like his internal 
thoughts or whatever, where it's like him getting impaled on his ship in the in the previous book where he loses his arm. So it's clearly like that. This is weighing heavily on his mind, and he, he, so at this point, you're kind of wondering like, is he just like got some sort of bloodlust out for the Nile because of like the you know deaths they've caused for in the Jedi Order, as well as the you know, personal attack on him losing his arm. It's like it's it's bringing up a lot more questions as to exactly what's wrong with him because you know any normal person, I suppose, you probably would justify you know cutting down a gnar like that and then brutally murdering him because to be honest, they they do the same to like any random person they found. But but for a Jedi, this is specifically out of character and almost worry, worrying um, as we've we've seen in many star other Star Wars projects. Like you know what happens to Jedi that send to descend down this path. So it's it raises a lot more questions than it answers for for um for Skier, but I suppose issue two of the, the volume it's exactly where it needs to be. So yeah, it was very interesting and I think an intense part of Skier's story in this volume. Yeah, and it does he does have that moment before like the Nile sort of jumps on him that he says like I can't he says like I can't sense you. Um sort of raising this other sort of thing which is going on with Skier, which is something to do with his connection to the force and that you know, he couldn't sense the Nile like literally jumping on his head. Um, so there clearly is something else going on there. But yeah, he's very much sort of when Key finds him, he's she makes a comment that he's just like pure rage. Um, I think she tells that to Avar when she sees Avar later in the in the issue. Um so, you know, in the words of Yoda, once you start down the dark path, it will forever consume your fate or something like that is that is that the line i'm misquoting it probably um so yeah it's not good that we're starting to see skier dabble in the darkness because we know what effect that can have on jedi so it definitely raises the stakes of the storyline quite a lot in this issue and then the fact that he's then sent off just sort of un um unsupervised to this planet um you know again raises the stakes a lot because He's just become a bit of a loose cannon already. And what's going on with him, you know, we're still slowly trying to unravel. Yeah, I mean, one thing I found really interesting actually about this like interaction is is um Skier has a comment and he's like, um, when Keith comes along and she's like, she asks him like, was there no way to? And he's like, he interrupts and is like disarm the coward. And it's like, obviously it's such a throwaway line, I suppose, but then it, it it really does go to show the difference between like <clears throat> the Jedi in this era, as opposed to like the Jedi we're used to. I mean, watching like the Clone Wars or like the prequels, you wouldn't think twice about a Jedi, like, you know, just like killing someone who's obviously a violent person, you know, like Mace Windu just beheads uh, Jango Fett. There's numerous times in Clone Wars when, you know, Anakin and Obi-Wan just like kill people where they have to. Um, but it's, it's a big point in like the High Republic about, you know, all life is precious, even those are the ones you're, of your enemies. Um, so I think that just like throwaway line there really, again, just if you're paying attention to it, points out the difference between the Jedi in this era and the Jedi that we're, we're used to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then I think Avar also has a line when Skeev like calls them like savages or something. And she's like, um, like they may be our enemies, but they're like, alive. They're, they're like living beings and we should like, not speak of them in that way. I can't, I can't quite remember what the exact wording is, but it's along the lines of like, you know, don't be so cruel uh, when talking about them because they're still living beings, even though they're our enemies. So clearly 
they have that constant struggle of like dealing with this fact that they want they want to preserve life but sometimes they do have to take it when you know they are being such as the Nile who just want to pillage and destroy yeah i mean it, it i think it does go to show like the dif- the definite difference between the, the jedi eras and how i think it's probably why we see a lot more um like not weakness but i suppose like people's own interpretations of the like jedi teachings in this era um is because some of it is goes against like your actual just own normal intuition like so much you know like if anyone tries to kill you your first thought isn't oh well you know we need to make sure these human beings are okay you just think well, what's this muppet doing like, let's just kill him before he kills me um so it's, it, i think it's an interesting point as to um how much flexibility i suppose that the jedi order is allowing in this in this time period and um but obviously it's it's clear here that skiers just taking it slightly too far yeah yeah just just a bit um so yeah and we also get an appearance um of ava chris again here she um she comes to the the ship to investigate with the rest of the jedi and then we've also got um Venestra Rowe and Imri from um oh, what was the name of that book? Test of Courage, which was the so sort of the middle grade book from the first wave of the High Republic stories. So again, that's another little bit of plot being interconnected here. Um so it's nice to see sort of these characters getting sprinkled across the story and popping in and out and jumping between different books. I think it makes the story really effective. Yeah, it definitely gives it like I suppose it's pretty. It's an easy example, but it gives it like that feel, like the MCU or something, where like you can see characters across all the multimedia forms, or like across um, all the different storylines and stuff, just to make the universe feel so much more like realistic, I suppose, and lived in. Like, it'd be absolutely there's absolutely no reason why any Jedi across any of the higher public stories like can't be in another book, or it wouldn't make sense for them to be in another book. Um, and I think sometimes it probably would take away from the story if there was just like no other Jedi from like a different book or something because you know it, they all traveled and help each other out and stuff like that so it definitely makes the everything just seem so much more realistic and it enriches the story so it's always nice to see a little cameo from someone someone else in a different book comic or whatever yeah i guess the the last little thing i wanted to mention about this issue was the scene sort of at the end when sarah and then skier later on and sort of wandering through the the sort of the cornfields and Obviously, we know that the, the Drengar are afoot. It's sort of what this issue teases at the end is very like reminiscent of sort of like your classic horror stories. And you know, when we were at the Kevin Scott panel at Comic Con, he was talking about how like big a horror fan is and how he wanted to make this High Republic comic like feel like a horror um, story. And I think like particularly those those you know even the scene on the Nile ship as well with all the hot ship with all the Nile gas and you know, like the Nile jumping out of nowhere, but particularly those scenes in the cornfields at the end feel very reminiscent of those sort of horror stories. Um, so I do think he's, you know, that little um, <laughs> that little side of him that wants to please his horror fan. I think he's definitely su- succeeded in this one because it's um, quite effective um, sort of genre m- merging and taking that sort of classic Star Wars, like space fantasy and mixing it with a little bit of horror in this, because I think that suits the Drengir as villains and as characters. And I, I definitely think it works quite well in this um, in this issue towards the end, and then particularly in the third issue as well. 
Yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the things that's great about this High Republic series. You know, it's just lots of different people coming together to work on it. And it's nice to see that Kevin Scott's been given enough freedom um, to add in a bit of horror. Because as you said on his panel, you mentioned he's a big fan of it. And, you know, he's a big fan of Doctor Who. Um, when he was younger, obviously still now to this day. So it's like it's nice to see that we get these personality traits and like preferences and things in there, right? And then how... Like it just adds a bit of refreshingness. Um, refreshingness adds a bit of just refreshing storytelling to to Star Wars, and, uh, and I I definitely agree that it, the art and stuff makes it gives it such a horror vibe, which is something that we haven't really haven't really seen before. Um, and I think it kind of just is perfectly written and and comes across really well. Yeah, and I guess speaking of horror, the uh, the third issue is where things definitely ramp up to uh, to more horrific to more horrific heights. Um, in the third issue, things. I'm trying to remember what side things happen, but essentially they land. They all land on Cedri Minor. Um, Sarah has gone missing. Terra is like freaking out because of their connection, and is sort of like saying all these like dark side things because of the like obviously because the Drenge have got Sarah and when like whilst they infect beings with the dark side obviously because the two of them are connected it's showing through terror so they're having to keep an eye on terror skier is just going mental um aval's sort of trying to keep an eye on him but he's just causing trouble um there's this other guy who's like an inhabitant on the planet who's telling the jedi just to get lost and doesn't want anything to do with them and he's sort of this sort of bully leader of the little village on this planet and meanwhile whilst all this is going on Keeve decides to sort of head out and have a little bit of a look around. She speaks to a couple of kids and they say that one of their friends has also gone missing and multiple people have gone missing in the fields. Um, so she sort of heads into the fields, bumps into this other kid and the two of them like come across this sinkhole in the floor and investigate it and eventually come across um, the Drengir where they've got Sarah sort of like... Um, bound up in vines and sort of vines going into the ears to show that Sarah's sort of been infected. Um, and, you know, the, the friend of the child is, is just dead because they've sort of had, I guess, like the life sucked out of them from the Drenge because they've been gone so long. Um, but Sarah sort of saying all this stuff about the Drenge and meat and all that sort of thing. And Keeve can't quite get through to them. And then eventually the Drenge sort of reveal themselves finally to Keeve and to the to the readers in sort of quite a horrifying, horrifying panel. Um, and it seems that, you know, they're trapped down there. And then Avar, there's this awesome panel where Avar sort of like drops down through the <laughs> through the roof of the cave, I guess, and slashes one of the Drenge in half. And then the issue sort of wraps up with um, Skier appearing in front of all of them, like fully drink it up like his arm his missing arm has been replaced with vines um he's like speaking like the text that he's speaking in is like is in black bubbles instead of white bubbles to show that he's obviously like speaking with the dark side and he's been like fully infected by the drink and he's essentially like captured them all um by the end of this issue i think as you know as we've been talking about this is another issue which steps up the tension and the the stakes when it comes to skier quite significantly 
it's it continues that horror vibe quite a lot of like Keeve going through the cornfields and coming down into this this like spooky cave um and coming across like these bodies hanging from vines um and then you've got your huge sort of action scene at the end with Avar coming down and slashing him in half only to be sort of apprehended at the end by skier and like a big old cliffhanger so this was another issue that i really really enjoyed i think it's really effective in what it does i do think it's the art again artwork continues to be really really good particularly the the panel of avar chris and the panel right at the end of skier as well was a really great panel um so yeah and i think keeve keeve is just so cool as a character because she's very much like she's reluctantly like, right, well, I'm going to go and look for them because no one else is doing anything. She reluctantly brings his kid along and it's like trying to protect him, but also like, what are you doing here? You should go back. Um, I just think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with Keeve. So yeah, I've rambled a lot. John, what was what are your thoughts on this one? <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I think what this issue does really well is exactly like that horror vibe thing. It's like, obviously, we, like it's just the, the whole build-up to the reveal of the Drengar in this issue and I think it you know if you on the on a TV screen or like on a movie or something it reminds me of it has exactly how you build up for like any horror villain like you know the big uh build up for like anytime Jaws the shark was in Jaws or that sort of thing. Um it's just I can imagine this having like really dramatic music behind it as like each page of the issue goes on and on and Keeve and uh, that little boy get further and further into the tunnel. Like I can imagine the music just getting like more and more intense uh, until maybe there's like a little uh, crescendo for the the vines, and then like maybe some big big instrumental comes in for the the Drengar um, reveal. Uh, so I think it's just as a comic panel, I think it has just done like a really good or comic pages. It has just done a really good job of keeping that horror theme going while. Um, then also chucking in some styles in the mix, as, as you said, with that really badass uh, page of like, Avar Chris just like erupting through the through the ceiling into like cutting a, a Drengar in half. Like I think it's just it's just mirroring up these two um, genres perfectly, um, and it's just I have to take my hat off to Kevin uh, Scott for like, the way he's written this, and then as I said in the beginning, like how the artist has interpreted it and drawn this because it's. It's exactly what it should be, I think, in my in my opinion. It, it perfectly combines the two the two genres together of horror and Star Wars. And yeah, that final scene at the end with Skier and the Jenga behind him, that is just menacing and terrifying because you're just like, well, what the what what the fuck is going to happen on like, next issue? Like, what what on earth is going on? <laughs> yeah, it's certainly a proper good cliffhanger because you know we know something's been up with Skier, but the fact that he's now at this point where he's just been completely consumed by the drink. I think it happens in this, it is in this issue that like he's trying to calm tear it like the other half of the the bond twin. And they just like spit this like spore like, onto his face. It's like these like black spores. And I think those are the drink spores, which infect him, which go on to, you know, have that moment when he sort of comes down and he's just like fully, you know, dark side, evil, you know, with the voice of all these scary plants. So it is a certainly an effective cliffhanger. I mean, I remember reading it the first time being like, damn, is that scare gone now? Like, is that him done for? Um, so yeah, it's certainly a very epic. I think, yeah, as you were talking about, I think this issue does a really good job of like being quite cinematic in the storytelling, even though it's a comic. Like it feels very big. It feels very epic. It feels very cinematic. 
you know, horror, that sort of thing. And I, I think, you know, the, the third act, I guess you'd call it, of this particular comic where things just go from like Keeve having to fight off the Drenge to Ava arriving to Skier arriving, but oh wait, he's evil. It's just like sort of punch after punch after punch. It's really, really effective. And yeah, I, I definitely think this is one of the, one of the highlights. Yeah, I feel like sometimes when you're reading it, you just you don't even realise like just how well the, the the story has been like told at the time. Like you're just like so intense in the panels, and then it's only like afterwards when you're going for a reread or just like um, if you're sitting there like reviewing the whole thing in one go, like you can actually see just how well the like the you know intensity's being built with each page, you know the pacing and everything like that. Um, so yeah, I think. I think stories like this is just definitely worth going back and rereading or just like having like looking at the whole comic or volume in like one go um, and just like analyzing it and just, and just seeing exactly how, because obviously when you're reading it, you know how intense you feel and you can see it and you can feel how intense the pages are. But then I don't think until you like take a step back and have a look at it properly, that you can actually like realize just how the comic, the, how the writer and the artist have come to that conclusion or like how they yeah. formed that story. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think, it, you know, it's very true about, you know, most art is that the sort of the first time you experience it, you experience it in one way. And then when you come back to it and take a little bit of a step back and actually sort of appreciate and analyse what's going on when you know the whole picture, I think you can end up coming to a very different conclusion. I think it could also be like you can enjoy something loads the first time and then realise that it wasn't actually that good the second time or vice versa. You or you know you appreciate it the first time, but then you really appreciate it on a on a rewatch or a reread or on a reread. And I certainly think that that holds up true to I think almost everything in the High Republic. I think I very much like, loved it the first time, and any time I've revisited, I've just sort of found more and more appreciation for the way the story is being told, the way the characters are being written, and the way that it's all the dots are all connecting. Yeah, exactly. I think I just think this uh, the third issue is a perfect halfway point. I suppose I know this volume's only like five issues, so I suppose it's like half half seventy-five percent or something like that way through. But I think it's just a it's just a very good way to introduce like the third act, I suppose, and you know, get that get a big a big um a big finish. So like, this is definitely where we're starting to kick it up a notch. Yeah. Yeah. And then we we move straight into the, the fourth issue where um starts off with a nice little flashback of Keeve and Skier sort of slightly in the past. Um, I think it said six years ago, just training as master and apprentice and um, Keeve trying to leap over a big gap and falling and Skier catching her and him just saying like, go again. But all this time you've got like Keeve's inner thoughts of, you know, who Skier means to her and who she believes Skier is. And obviously that's not the Skier she's seeing in front of her. Um, and this issue we learn more about the Drengir, we sort of get a bit of their backstory, the fact that they once sort of like them and the Sith once sort of just like <laughs> destroyed the galaxy and then eventually the Sith betrayed them and um, locked them all up in inside the, the Maxine station, which we see in Into the Dark. And when Reef Silas and Comac Vitus and all that went on to the Maxine station, they released the great progenitor who's like the, I guess like the, the, the Drenge queen, the Drenge mother. And when she was released, all the Drenge around the, the galaxy who were sort of dormant woke up essentially. Um, so we learned that little bit of backstory about them. And then all the Jedi are sort of being caught in the, in the Drenge's vines and they're all prisoners and they're all being like consumed. And Keeve is trying to talk um, 
skier out of everything that he's doing until eventually he um like overcomes this sort of like corruption of his and um helps to break them all free um because that was part of his plan wasn't it it was like <laughs> he wanted to know what they wanted so he let them consume him completely so we could sort of figure out what it was that they were that they were up to yeah i mean it's a, it's a risky plan there from Skier, but I guess it paid off in the end. <laughs> um, yeah, I really like that opening, those opening scenes. They, those opening scenes like, really reminded me of like um, the training we see between uh, Loden and I can't remember the Padawan's name for the life of me, but um, oh. into the... Pardon? Bell, Zetafar. Ah, uh, Bell, that's it, yeah. Loden and Bell, like, in Light of the Jedi. But it just reminds me of their train, obviously, with Loden just like chucking Bell off things. And so he has to like catch himself, I'm sure. Um, you know, we'd probably get, if they had time, I'd probably get some extended panels of these two trying to train as well, of her just trying to leap over the thing and um, Skier having to catch her every time. I, I did like his line, though. Um, and it was just like, there are no shortcuts on the lights path. You know, you just got to take your time to learn these things and it will come like, when it comes, I suppose. I thought that was just like a really good line, um, which again, just like summarizes uh, how the Jedi are on this issue. You know, we, we hear from, um, was it like Master Yoda, maybe, uh, or Obi-Wan in the prequels, I'm, I'm sure it might be, uh, that, you know, like the dark side may be quicker to gain, get your power, but it's not necessarily more powerful than the light. So it's nice to see that this uh, kind of theme's been mentioned here. That, like, you will get there, but it might just take a little bit longer. And obviously patience is... It's one of the key Jedi teachings, so it's no wonder that that Skier is trying to get that across. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. That's a, a nice, effective message that is sort of quite key to the Jedi, and yeah, continues on in in this era of storytelling as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just like it was, I think this was just like quite a fun, fun issue that kind of builds into the big dramatic final, um, final issue, Volume Five. I mean, do you have like the Jedi fighting the Dren Gear across? Um, the planet they're on, and then there's like a Drenga outbreak on Starlight Beacon as well, where they've they've managed to take the Hut's uh, deceased body back to <clears throat> Starlight Beacon, but it's been infected with the Drenga. So it just seems like Jedi on all all fronts are just basically having to scrap the Drenga. So there's some cool like, action scenes of the Jedi fighting um, stuff like that. I'm I was a little bit disappointed that we didn't see more of um, Orbelin. Uh, an action on on panel like we see him analyzing the, yeah. the heart body but we don't see much action of him which is was a slight disappointment for me because i love to see how his fighting styles are like, drawn on a comic because obviously he's in a in a suit but he is technically just like a, a load of jelly so I, I can imagine him being just like on the panel like already flexible or something or like his arms like blocking us something from like literally like right behind him that would just be like impossible for a normal person to do or something like that i'd have, I'd have enjoyed seeing him scrapping yeah panel. i think this comic came out before the rising storm so i imagine that Kevin scott wanted to save the big reveal of how orbelin fights to that sort of scene in the rising storm yeah. so remember the rising storm was like have we ever met this guy before and then obviously you go back and you realize he was in this scene on starlight beacon with maru and finestra and emery when like the drink it bursts out the hut so uh yeah i want more orbelin at some point but i think uh, i think the reason we didn't get it here was cavern was making us be patient for the rising storm for that for that big payoff that we eventually got in that book 
Yeah, I mean, I don't blame him because it was a big payoff in that book. Like those those few pages with uh, Auburn and fighting were just some of the best in the entire book for me. So I'm glad we uh, we got that reveal then. Yeah, so essentially, this this book answers the question of you know what's happened to Skier for the previous issue. Like he did let them consume him; it was intentional, but he wanted he did it to sort of understand their plan. Um, but there's still some more going on there, which doesn't quite get answered until the final issue. So we all get onto that. Um, so Skier eventually sort of breaks out of their mind control, I guess, helps the Jedi escape. They destroy the drain gear, break up to the surface. Um, but as you said, all hell was breaking loose on Starlight Beacon. They're needing help. Um, Jedi are a bit too preoccupied where they are. And then just as they seem to have got on control of things, a big hut ship arrives on the planet and Miaga the hut, I think is the hut's name arrives with a, essentially what is an army and tells the Jedi to get the hell off of her planet basically. And the little um, sort of mini plot thread of this, this sort of bully sort of leader of this little village who didn't want the Jedi there is because he's sort of part of this protection racket where the, the hearts basically control this planet and they want to, they basically will protect in inverted commas um, the citizens of this planet if they give them the grain that they harvest. So that's basically where this little storyline's unfolded and why the huts are involved here. And that's obviously why the, you know, there was the hut ship with the, the dead hut on the ship where obviously I think the insinuation with that is that it's something to do with like the Nile when they caught on to what the Drengir were about, were like wanting to spread the Drengir around the galaxy. We see that in some of the other books that the Nile were actively like choosing to like spread the Drengir. So whether the reason that we got the Drengir on this planet was part of the Nile, I think is still up in the air, but I think that's the interpretation that I read of, of this specific, you know, connection between the hot corpse and everything. Yeah. I mean, I kind of forgot about the, the huts kind of joining in the last panel that issue four and then the final issue because god it just uh, it feels like they just fit so much into five issues and like, most comics i've ever read are like six issues long for like the issue or like volumes and stuff you go like one to six and then seven to twelve or seven to thirteen or whatever um so i'm, I'm surprised at how much i managed to fit in and i, I forgot about the the huts joining in at the end and just like, the impact they have um so it was nice being reminded that they aren't in volume two they actually they were continued in volume one so it's it's i don't know how they managed to pack so much in without getting like bogged down and convoluted but yeah i mean hats off to the cabin got again yeah the hearts become a very interesting factor in the fifth issue where essentially all, all hell breaks loose because avar wants to negotiate with the hearts skier loses his temper again and starts attacking them to which the hut army basically starts attacking all the Jedi and then the Drengir then get involved. They're also tearing up Starlight Beacon and tearing up places all over the galaxy. And um, Avar eventually about halfway through the fight, you know, there's a Rancor involved and you've got Sarah and Terra like trying to take on this Rancor. There's all sorts going on, but main plot point is that Avar and, the hut eventually come to a truce that they're going to fight the Drengir together because the hut has as much to lose if the Drengir sort of ravage the world as much as the Jedi do. And then Skier admits to Keeve that, right, this is the complicated bit. So whilst he did 
like want to find out what the Drengo are up to. He also, because he's started losing his connection to the force and he sort of wanted to try and like use the Drengo to help heal his connection to the force. But because he was losing his connection to the force and the, the Drengo are formed to the dark side, that sort of connection ended up consuming him a bit too much in the dark side, which is why he's sort of losing his temper so much and all this sort of stuff. So there's a lot still going on with Skip, but he essentially get gets Keeve to use a mind touch on him because he's still connected to the Drengear to tell them that like that they should run away because all the meat that they're consuming is spoiled, which I think is hilarious <laughs> because the Drengear are all like meat, meat, meat. They want to eat meat like humans and aliens and stuff are all just meat to them that they're going to consume because they're savages. Um, so they send this message out to all the Drengear, which basically says like this meat is spoiled run away um and it is successful like all the drengear run both on starlight all across the galaxy they sort of run into retreat um and avar thinks uh, for now that they beat them back but the, the panel the final page of this this issue like the the five issue arc ends with skier looking not that alive sort of in keeve's arms as keeve is sort of screaming at him like don't do this don't do this like don't die basically because you know there was a concern that her using the mind touch on him and putting such a lot of info you know forcing him to send this message might damage him and clearly it has so it's a very climactic ending to the story i mean it's essentially like a big battle with huts and mercenaries and drengear um there's a lot going on jedi fighting rancors all sorts of awesome stuff but at the core of it is like this relationship between keeve and skier and Skier's sort of like struggles that he's been feeling ever since the battle that he's losing his connection to the force. He's getting like sort of tempted towards the darkness and this, this connection that he made with the Drengir whilst it helped them win, it also did more damage to him long-term. Yeah. I mean, this final issue has got a lot going on. As you say, you know, there's like Jedi scrapping, um, the Drengir, there's mercenaries, there's huts, there's, there's all sorts getting involved, rancors, you know, there's, there's literally so much action going on here. Um, but yeah, I think <clears throat> that the, it really is an interesting point. I think we've sort of scared there that he's, he's, he's confessing that he's losing his connection to the force, um, which is obviously any, uh, for any Jedi, that's like terrifying. And that's like the one thing I suppose that you have in the universe that makes you feel like connected with everyone else and stuff. And if it's fading, then I suppose you will do anything you'll try anything to try and get it back, which is obviously why he's like connected with the drain gear to try and reestablish that connection. Um, I feel like the <laughs> way of winning against the drain gear by basically trying to convince him the meat is spoiled is like, it just seems like such like a doctor who like way of doing it. And obviously I know Kevin's got a big doctor who fan. And I just feel like that would be like literally like a Monday night episode of like doctor who is like, that's how they'd win or something. Yeah, oh, as, some, as, some as a sort of silly thing like yeah, that. As a massive Doctor Who uh, way of winning, you're right. Actually, now you've said that. Like, I'm pretty sure the Doctor's probably done that before. <laughs> yeah, so it's nice to see Kevin Scott's uh, again, like his preferences and stuff coming into his storytelling in, in a successful way because you know it makes sense for what he's trying to. It makes sense for what he's trying to do, and then obviously there's there's other stuff that happens with the drink in like the next volume, which I'm sure we'll talk about another day, but. Um, yeah, I think it was a good finish to this to this volume, and it ends on another cliffhanger, which then you had to wait to uh, issue six or like volume two to come out, depending on how you wanted to consume it. So, 
um, yeah, it, it, it told a very interesting story with a very climactic finale, which then also ended on a very interesting cliffhanger. So I think it just ticks all the boxes really for what you want um, for a volume one of a of a comics ongoing comic series. Yeah, I think it's a very impressive final issue, as he said, as we said, you know, lots of action, lots of really interesting character moments, lots of like threads which are going to be picked up further picked up further down the line, you know, with what's happened to Skier, is he still alive? You know, when are the Drenge going to come back? This alliance that Avar's made with the Huts, is there going to be any fallout from that? Um, you know, so loads of interesting threads which, you know, do get picked up in the next issues of this comic and in some of the books as well. So it tells a really effective story, it wraps up this first arc really well. I think the like the name of the like the thing being the name of the volume being There Is No Fear, I think works out really well because obviously that's one of the lines from the the Jedi. I don't even know what it is. It's like the, the 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 message they all say. You know, there is serenity, there is the force, all that sort of thing. But also, it ties really well into like the drain gear that they, you know, they create fear, they use fear. It's very horror driven. There's obviously um, Skier is clearly afraid of him losing his connection to the force. So I think thematically, fear is a big part, plays a big part in this entire sort of volume and I think it wraps up the story very well at the end here and definitely leaves you wanting more um so yeah I mean I think it's a great final issue I think it's a a brilliant five issue storyline and I do think that anyone who hasn't given the High Republic a shot yet should do so anyone who's just read the books but hasn't dived into the comics this is your reason to do it because it is really really cool and exciting storytelling that does have a direct effect on the books it's not like um where often in Star Wars, like the main story is told in the films and then the books and the comics sort of like supplement. So it gives you additional stuff if you want it, but it's not going to make the films difficult to understand. But in this initiative, like the books are telling like the main story, but so are the comics. So it's not two separate entities, like one supporting the other. It's like they're both telling this full story. So um, I definitely recommend people checking it out. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. It's like, as you say, like you can come time, you sometimes get with, style was like yeah the the films are the main story and then it's just like additional stuff if you need it but i think for um the high republic it's definitely definitely worth uh trying to consume as much of it as you can because the stories intertwine like very well like this comic intertwines with light of the dark um or into the dark sorry and light of the jedi like very well and it's just it's it's just very interesting as well to see that this form of storytelling in Star Wars just across the different multimedia. So obviously you have uh, the books which we've reviewed before, which are very good. This comic is obviously, as we've been saying today, like excellent. <clears throat> the you know you got the audio dramas and stuff, and just I think everything that's coming out of the High Republic is just such a high quality standard. So you know if you've, as Dan said, you know if you want to get into it, please I re- we recommend it very highly. And you know if you've only read the books. Again, I'd very much recommend reading the, this particular um, comic and then um, obviously give the other ones a go if you like. But I think they're all just such good standards that you, you're missing out if you don't try and consume as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, overall thoughts. I, I, I do love these this this first volume of this story. I love these first five issues. Hard to decide which issue. I mean, I'm, I'm a real big fan of the first issue. I think the first issue is awesome. I really love the third one and I really love the last one. I mean, all, I like all five, but I think my top three of the five are definitely one, three, and five. Um, 
and all three of them are awesome for different reasons. Like one is a great introduction. Three is that great, really like story driven middle point with lots of great horror influences and a great plot twist. And then five is your great climactic endings. I think, you know, they're all great, but those are the ones that really connect to me. And um, sort of as the story continues in the comics, it, it gets more and more exciting and more and more interesting. So um, I think, hopefully when the next volume releases which i don't know when the next volume is due out in the uk we'll have to keep an eye out for it but when the next volume does come out we'll definitely chat about that on the podcast at some point but this comic series is going to continue all the way through the three phases of the high republic so even in january when phase one ends and phase two begins later on in 2022 these comics are still going to be ongoing so there's going to be plenty of this for the next few years to to keep up with so if you want something to read month to month the high republic comic is a great place to start yeah 100 um i think i don't actually know what we're up to on the volume on the issues at the moment i know on marvel unlimited which is what i tend to use because i'm a cheap cheapskate i think it's on like volume eight so you have quite a few volumes to issues to, it's on issue eight sorry so you've got You've got enough issues to keep, get, sink your teeth into just uh, to get you hooked. I don't know. I actually know what we're up to on, on the live. I think, we're on, like, I think we're on 11. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think 11 came sense. out last month, which I buy them on Comixology to read them every month because I'm impatient. I can't wait. Um, and the stuff they're doing in that is really, really awesome. So, um, yeah, shout out to Kevin Scott. Shout out to Ariane and Dito and the team on artwork. This is a really special comic and... Um, I hope that if you've been listening to this, I hope that you've been inspired to pick it up and read it yourself. Because even though we've sort of gone through the plot in detail, there's still the experience of, um, you know, reading this and watching it unfold on the page firsthand is still going to be brilliant, even if you've listened to this and you know some of the details. So it's definitely worth a, worth a read. And if you're someone like us who's been keeping up with the High Republic and you, you know, love this comic as much as we do. Maybe you just mean inspired to go pick it up and read it again or travel to England and get Kevin Scott to sign it because <laughs> that's what we did, even though we live in the UK, so we didn't travel anywhere, but you get what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. Just just pick it up, even if you, you know, uh, know the plot in and out, you've read it on Wikipedia or something. The artwork is spectacular, so I, you know, I can't recommend this this volume high enough and you know in star wars and cabin scott and in the mouse we trust at the moment because they're coming out with pure gold yeah we trust in everything apart from ea is the moral <laughs> of the story <laughs> yeah so that's about it really do you think? <laughs> right so should we uh should we wrap up there i think we should do you want to go through the, the plugs yeah the plugs um so yeah as if you've enjoyed this podcast make sure you subscribe follow like whatever you do on your podcast app to keep up to date we uh, drop new episodes every week um follow us on instagram at live from vader's castle at twitter at vader's castle pod uh, subscribe to our youtube live from vader's castle um twitch live from vader's castle tiktok live from vader's castle we're all over the place um not that we use some of that stuff as actively as we use our instagram um and release our podcast but we're about um hopefully next week if both mine and john's weeks go well we'll be we'll have our book club episode about thrawn but i'll put a big maybe on that because i think the two of us are struggling to find time to read at the moment so we'll see how we do um but if we don't have it ready for next week we'll get something else awesome out for you in the meantime um 
And other than that, thank you very much for listening. John, you can uh, wrap the episode up for us. Yeah, thank you very much for listening, guys. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye.